0: Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you probably realize by now that I like talking to a lot of different people from different backgrounds. And I occasionally have friends on whom I've known either professionally or personally to talk about a variety of issues. Well, one of those individuals whom I've known for a number of years, who is a reformed union leader, so to speak, is a friend by the name of Joe Brock. And he is a former Teamster leader. And he and I talk on occasion about a variety of issues. And last week we were talking and I said, you need to come on to the podcast. So we arranged for Joe to be available today. And I think he was concerned at first about not having enough to talk to. But as you'll hear, we had plenty to talk about. In any case, here's Joe Brock. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Joe Brock, it is an honor to have you on Labor Relations Radio. And I got to say, you and I have known each other for many years, and I, I like to have friends on just to kind of shoot the breeze out in the open, so to speak.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Finally, get a chance and opportunity to sit with you and and discuss some fun issues.
0: Well, you know, I've had Phil Wilson on a few times and several others that were kind of in the same space, and we've known each other for years, and oftentimes we'll talk offline and just general state of affairs, and, you know, you and I were talking last week, and and you were talking about something that we'll get to in a minute, but it was very intriguing and a good reason to have you on. But before we go there, why don't you explain your background, because you've been in the labor relations arena, so to speak, for many, many years, but you started out as a teamster.
1: I did. I did. So, so my background in, in the union uh, started at an early age. I was uh, just a little kid. My father was a high-ranking teamster in the Philadelphia area. If if I sound funny, I'm from Philadelphia. That's my Philadelphia accent. If I, yeah, right, you if guys I from funny. Philly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I learned at an early age uh, that if if I went to the union hall with my father, it got me out of church with my mom. Right. That was really my only logic and reasoning for wanting to go to the union hall with my father. I was seven or eight years old. Pretty smart kid to, to, to make that connection.
0: That was probably so, why he went to the union hall as well. Right, to
1: get out of church. <laughs> um, so so uh, I, I went to the union hall just to run around and, and, and play. And you know, lo and behold, I listened to my father give speeches to workers. And my father was a very smart man, very uh, pen is mightier than the sword. Uh, probably not your standard teamster for back in the 70s and late sixties. Um, but lo and behold, you know, you, you raised by the man, I became very union friendly. And, um, when I went to work, when I grew up and got a job, uh, some will say I never grew up. But when I went to work, I was a union mechanic. I got a job with a little company in Philadelphia called Coca-Cola. You probably have heard of our fine products mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, became a, a teamster mechanic, became a shop store, and I always went to the union meetings because I wanted to hear my, my pop talk. And uh, over the years, um, eventually, after working for through a number of bargaining uh, committees, I became a temporary course of the summer. A lot of the officers got sick and I went to work temporarily for the Teamsters as an organizer. And um, some of the officers, my father included, got sick and uh, I went to work organizing workers and and I was good at it. I, I knew this the speech. I knew what to say to workers. I knew what to, to not to say, to leave out. And um and probably I was probably good at it for the reason that salespeople are good at what they do. I believed in my product. I believed that you needed me like you need air, and and that I could help you. Uh, so uh, I went to work for the Teamsters Union. Eventually, I quit my job at Coca Cola. Uh, started bargaining contracts for the Teamsters, and uh, started rising through the ranks. I was always an organizer. Even eventually, I reached the rank of president of my my union. I was we we always organized. We were oh, that was always part of our job duties was to organize, and um, I, I started bargaining literally hundreds of contracts. I believed in the cause. I believed in in the fight fighting greedy corporations was something I was raised to do and wanted to do. And, um, probably when I became the president of the union, yes, I guess you start seeing how the sausage is made, right? You, you start seeing that what you do uh, and what you need to do to be successful is not always with the best interests of the membership. And, and for me, over the course of years, I kind of came to the conclusion that uh, I was not fighting greedy corporations. We, we were one. We were a greedy corporation, and, and our money was more important than members' money, and, 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 and their dollars in most cases, and um, the decisions that we made were always, not always, but were very often at odds with what was in the best interest of the members. So for me, and and this isn't something that happens overnight. (laughs) This is something that happens over the course of observing a lot of things. And I kind of came to the conclusion that it was kind of at odds with my upbringing. Um, This isn't how my father ran unions. This this wasn't the belief set that was instilled in me. And uh, I really just kind of lost faith. I didn't like the man in the mirror. I didn't like what I had to do to be successful at what I was doing. I didn't just walk away. I did try to constitute some change in that movement, knowing fully well where that was going to lead to. Um, I decided to, to institute kind of an, a, an exit strategy. I started going to the Wharton School at night. I wanted to be, uh, get involved in the health and welfare fund at the end of it and, and pension funding. Um, you know, most of our collective bargaining sessions back in the 80s and 90s were about pensions and funding. We didn't have any money left for wages. We had to try to fund our pensions. So, um, but lo and behold, um, you know, uh, I just became so disgruntled that, that I, I was making a good living by the way, as the president of the Teamsters Union. But that intrinsic value of a job was no longer there. I didn't feel like what I did was valuable to working people. And again, it was just that man in the mirror, and the very way I was raised by by that man, uh, my father, that kind of caused me to to leave the labor movement. And there's a whole story behind the actual prospect and and, and mechanism of leaving. But lo and behold, uh, you know, if I was satisfied, um, and if I would just run the business of a union, the way that unions run their business, I would still be the president of my union, maybe even further. Uh, but I just didn't like, again, I didn't like the man in the mirror and I just couldn't continue to do it.
0: So let me ask you in my case, it was like a, it was about two years that it took me from a philosophical shift or like, I've always loved helping workers. And I think a lot of what we do today is still helping workers, but you know, from going to 110 percent pro union to now educating workers about unions, that's a big shift. And how long was that shift for you?
1: Well, it was it was even a shift after I left the union. I didn't leave the union to become a a quote, a quote unquote union buster, um, and uh, it was never my intention. Uh, I was sitting around one day and, um, someone suggested I get into consulting and do this and I would sooner hang myself than do that back then. And I had a conversation with another consultant, uh, someone that we both know and, uh, Ryan Mm. and, um, I, I spent, and and Ryan can talk as you, as you may know, and we spent a quick phone call on a Sunday and he didn't know me. I didn't know him. And he gets me on the phone just to answer some questions for me or to talk to me, which ended up being like a three-hour conversation because it's Ryan. And um, he talked to me about, you know, if if, if you're like me, because Ryan has that union background, if you're like me and you really do care about workers, you're going to be amazed at what you what change you can actually constitute from this side. Right. And, and a large part of what we do is that I think Phil refers to it as the left of boom. And by the way, I love when you and Phil are on together. I just learned so much myself. Uh, but when, uh, you know, the whole idea of the easiest way of keeping the union out of your workplace, and it's simple, is to create an atmosphere where the direct relationship is one that works. And if employees value that direct relationship, they'll never seek that third party. And he said that you're going to learn that as a union rep, you tried to do that, and sometimes you succeeded, and sometimes you, you often fail. But from this side, they listen to you because you're helping them to avoid something that's very expensive for their organization. Unions are expensive for organizations, even if the union gets their employees nothing. So um, it made sense to me, and 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 I kind of dipped my toe in. And and I learned that you know when I when I went to 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 Coca Cola as the president of the union, and I said that your warehouse manager is a piece of shit and 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 doesn't you know he treats employees terribly. They would tell me to to you know you your name isn't on the building, get out of here. We don't care. Go run your union. Uh, when I say it in in the realm of a campaign, and I go to the leadership who has no idea what's happening in this part of the country with their company, and you tell them why their employees are considering a union, they actually listen to me. Yeah. And I've learned that you know, I, I get things done now uh, for working people more so, and, and people laugh at this when I tell them, more so from this side than I ever did when I was the president of my union. Now, I would go to war with people uh, for, for members, and I would fight for them. Uh, often had to fight my own union in order to fight for my members, um, but I found that this is easier if you're somebody who really cares about working people and what they do. You know, this is one way to do it. And and before I ever got into this, I had a heart-to-heart with my father, who worked even past retirement as an arbitrator, uh, and he was he was. You know, what you do, you, you, you have integrity, you'll bring your integrity to what you do, and I have no doubt that you're going to be able to be successful in this end of the business, just like you were on the other end. So um, that's kind of what got me into it, and I found that to be somewhat true, that that you can constitute change, and that employers do care about uh, keeping a direct relationship with their employees. And my experience is they do more in, you know, I tell workers this all the time. The threat of a union is not bad for you as a worker. The threat of a union is good for you. Employers hold a lot of the cards, but you hold this card. And if employers don't want you to play this card, my experience, they create a workplace sometimes that's better than before. And, and, you know, is your workplace ever going to be perfect? No, it's not. But... In my experience, the threat of a union keeps many of them honest, and they address some issues in the workplace, and they do their best to keep workers happy. Always going to have problems. Union or not?: Well, but, you, um,
0: you touched on something, and <clears throat> I've tried to explain this for years to people, that you know the threat of the union is usually a bigger hammer than actually having the union. Mm-hmm. because to your point, you're talking about a manager in the warehouse that's crappy manager. I can't tell you over the last 30 years how many bad managers have either been sent to charm school and if they don't straighten up, they're gone or just mm-hmm. flat out gone if they're that egregious. Whereas sitting on the union side of the table, you could pound your fist all day and and you get the response that you got at your former employer that, you know, you don't dictate who our managers are. Where you go exactly. in you go in today and it's like, yeah, your problem is over there in the warehouse with that manager. You know he's got to go, and and because the employer is actually listening to your advice, you know, oftentimes they'll take action.
1: Right, they're partnering with you. They know that right. you know how this works. Right. You're the expert. Um, you, you, you know, we we generally win these campaigns. So so they they uh, they also recognize that when we do win these campaigns. It's not the last say. There's always another opportunity for a vote. So if, if, if you don't address these issues, uh, you're just going to have, you know, this problem again next year. So I've found that employers, you know, they do pick that low-hanging fruit sometimes. Sometimes they do a lot better. And sometimes they don't. They're human beings. Sometimes they don't do better. Those places eventually get unions. You can't keep going back to the well and say, well, let's just try it again. You know, um, but employees, they really don't want to give their money to somebody else. They want their employer to address the workplace and, and the issues that they have and be fair and reasonable. And again, employers who value that direct relationship and work at that, they don't have these problems. And my experience is most of the time these things happen because employers do the things that they do. This, it is rare. It's rare when it's employees just buying the sales pitch. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times there's truth behind, um, their, their, um, grievances.
0: Yeah. You also touched on something that we should talk about a little bit is, you know, unions cost employers a lot of money, even if they don't get the employees anything. And that's something that a lot of employees don't get. You know, it costs money to run a business, whether it's hiring outside counsel, whether it's, you know, putting somebody into a labor relations role to negotiate contracts or handle grievances, or if it's HR, getting somebody with union background, which is going to cost you more.
1: Or or besides all that, if you are a workplace that's publicly traded, if you're publicly traded and there's a stock price with shareholders. Union organizing drives typically don't send the stock price soaring. Uh, they they get shareholders upset, they get negative publicity, uh, stock stockholders get upset, and the stock price can often drop, and that can cost an organization uh, millions of dollars. So listen, if if unions were 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 good for the employer, they'd make them join. <laughs> if they right. if they We're going to cause the stock price to soar. So yeah, the employer makes a business decision when they, when they fight a union, but so do unions and trying to get in. This is a business decision for them too.
0: Well, it it is many, many years ago um, that I did work for a company that had its main customer customer base was the airline industry and the airlines Mm -hmm. are largely unionized, but the client, had an issue with becoming unionized because in all of its orders, shall you say, or shall we say with the, the airlines it said, are you unionized? And if so, when does your contract expire? And the reason for that is even though the customers, the airlines were unionized, they wanted to know if they're going to get their products out the door. So they would divert some of their, you know, if there's a contract and there's going to expire, they divert some of their ordering to the competitors, well, sometimes those competitors wouldn't come back,
1: that's and right. that's
0: that's the hidden cost that a lot of workers don't get. You know, it's like you could lose customers just for the mere fact of being unionized, whether you have a good contract or bad.
1: Look at look at um, when, you, when you talk about that big companies like UPS and a FedEx. If, right. if I'm if I'm a small business and I ship all my products through UPS, what did I just do in the last year? I probably opened up an account um with, with FedEx away from UPS because if there's a strike there and that can shut my business down, now I'm out of business. So maybe I would consider not putting all my eggs in that basket.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting. Back in the ninety-seven strike, um, which you probably remember when UPS was out on or Teamsters were out on strike at UPS for three weeks, FedEx got a ton of business. And then this most recent negotiations. They cut it off in March for any customers that wanted to come over to FedEx from UPS. They said, we're, we're, our doors are open to you, but we're cutting it off in March. And so <laughs> had the UPS had a strike, like everybody from March to July who didn't jump ship over to FedEx, they were kind of SOL.
1: Right. right. Like. Or they find someone else. Right. Or they find someone else. Right. Uh, but these are the kind of decisions that employers make when faced with the prospect of their employees going union. It, they're not worried when you, te- when, when, you know, when you let everybody know how collective bargaining really works. They don't have to, they're not worried they're going to have to open up the checkbook to pay them more money. They have to pay them fairly. They're worried about all these other ancillary issues. Getting my product out there, my stock price, my shareholders, the people that get upset. Uh, the loss of the direct relationship that they have—you know—many employers do value that. So there's a lot of sound business reasons why employers fight unions that I try to relay to employees that have nothing to do with that, nothing to yeah. do with that.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons why unions want workers that have nothing to do with them.
1: <laughs> so it, it, there, the main there's a big main one. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um. So, was there any particular trigger event that caused you to say, "Okay, I'm done," or is it just kind of a slow, gradual process?
1: Well, there there, there are election processes. It was a slow process, and I started uh, started asking a lot of questions uh, and and about how officers uh, are paid and how officers work. You, you, officer pensions, for example. I'm I'm an officer, and and I'm going to get a pension for the work that I do for the Teamsters. And Peter, you know who funds our pensions, right? Right.
0: The members. Right.
1: The members do. The dues, the dues money does. If if our pension plans were starting to uh get into a funding, some funding difficulty and started becoming underfunded, the remedy was easy. Okay, what did we do? We just raised the dues, right? We our, our pensions were funded. The members' pensions are funded by employers, and especially multi-employer pension plans. They're funded by employers through agreements through the collective bargaining process. It's not funded by their dues. It's funded by collective bargaining in that process. Well, when their pension plan gets underfunded, we don't just raise, we don't just turn the faucet up. You can't, because you have agreements. You have to do something different. And those pension plans tend to, to go on. There's a lot of other ancillary issues behind that that we can get into. But those pension plans get troubled because you just can't go back and turn to pick it up. And and when people say, well, as an officer, you get a pension. Well, yeah, you, you pay. That's why the union wants you. You pay for it. So I would question these things to the leadership and, and the teamsters. Well, why do we why do we get these pensions that we can't get for our members and we can't provide for our members? Um, that didn't make me popular with my peers and my leaders in the Teamsters. Uh, but I had reached a point where I was going to do it. Listen, if I I started running against some powerful people and they have a little document called the Constitution that, that they they utilize against political opponents. So uh, and they also had this great process of um, blackballing and, and that's another tradition the Teamsters have, and unions have. So there was there there was make no mistake. I made the decision to leave, and they 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 did their best to help me make that decision because I was no longer playing ball with them. Let's let's. I I think and and I think the biggest trigger for me, and I'll give you an example. There was a we had a strike at at a plant in in New Jersey, uh, a soda plant, and it was it was it was actually a strike that was justified. A very wealthy employer with very favorable healthcare premiums trying to screw over his employees. And the employees went on strike. They wanted to to you know take this battle on. And the leadership of the Teamsters came down to the picket line. Amazingly that they would do this right when strike funding was going to have to start. They were going to start paying strike benefits. And they they literally in front of the picket line hopped in with the owner into his Mercedes and drove to Atlantic City in front of the members, in front of me, I'm the president of the union. And they did it in front of me and they drove to Atlantic City and came back with not another deal, but uh, uh, they dictated that you will go back to work or we're going to replace you all. You're all going to get replaced Mm. if you don't go back to work. And, And they went back to work. And, and then at that meeting, I told them that I was going, you know, this isn't what I signed up for and I won't be around. Um, so uh, that's the triggering for me.
0: You're touching on a whole bunch of stuff that we can like dive into. <laughs> so the strike fund up until 2021 with the Teamsters was that you had to be out on strike for at least two weeks. Strike pay would kick in the third week. So a lot of times you'd see strikes that would last, Ten days, twelve days, whatever, and they get back to work. Miraculously, is right before the members were eligible for strike pay. Right. The the new strike pay plan from the Teamsters puts it at the very first day, and I found that very interesting, particularly with the potential UPS strike that never happened. And I had a a UPS Teamster on last week, and I didn't connect the dots there, but he was they a bunch of rank and filers were upset that Sean O'Brien agreed to a contract just before the deadline, right? Like three days before. And they mm-hmm. felt that he could have gotten a better deal. But I wonder what the calculus was with regard to if there's a strike with 340,000 people and they start paying strike <laughs> by the very first day, you know, that's going to dip into the the treasury rather quickly.
1: Very quickly. Yep. Yeah. That, w- that would deplete that within... Geez, I, I did the math once, and I don't remember the number, but it wasn't a very long strike.
0: Right. Well, and it, so I did it with, I, and I actually did a post on this. If you were to have all 340,000 Teamsters collecting strike pay, and the union only has $350 million, I think I did the math on, it equated to around $860 or 880 per striker for the entire, mm-hmm. that would bankrupt the treasury. Or at least the strike Absolutely.
1: fund. At least the strike fund. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's always been an issue. It was always uh, their money. And anytime it came to a, a point where uh, a strike was going to start dipping into where they were going to have to strike, start paying benefits, that's when they came down on the leaders of the world. And they came down hard. Right. And they threatened you with trusteeship and everything else.
0: Define trusteeship for the listeners.
1: Sure. A trusteeship is when... Um, the international union decides that the local leaders have committed some offense uh, and they, they send their accountants in, they find any kind of accounting thing they can do. It's really a tool that they use against any kind of a political opponent uh, that they have. Um, and, and they take over their local, they just take over their local and they basically fire the leaders. Uh, and, and it's just a weapon that they use to, so that you are obedient to their whim and and what they want. So when they start saying you you can agree to this and you need to get this contract done, you'd better get that contract done because they say that you're um, independent of them, but you're not, they, they hold sway over the local leaders. Local leaders don't want anybody coming into their hall and looking through their books.
0: So again, different point, but on this topic, I was talking to this teamster last week and it's been interesting. You were around in the Kerry days, Ron Kerry days. Yes. And then the I Hoffa the days. Yes. Yeah. So you remember when Ron Kerry came in, he cleaned out a whole bunch of Teamster locals across the country and mm-hmm. like just took out the leadership across the board. Yes. Six years later, whenever Hoffa came in, Hoffa Jr., he cleaned out on the other side a whole bunch. <laughs> right. And and interestingly, I was kind of expecting this, and maybe it's too soon, but when Sean O'Brien just took over, I haven't seen any locals be put under trusteeship. I think there's one due to corruption. There know, is embezzlement, one. Embezzlement, but
1: but right. he hasn't done I, the
0: political clean, cleaning of the house like his two predecessors did.
1: Right. No, they just put a local into trusteeship. But that guy was running that local forever, and he was doing the things that he was doing forever. I wish I could remember the look. I was on the campaign with that union when he put him in the trusteeship, and now I'm drawing a blank on who it was. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I still think that he will. I, I think that he's got bigger fish to fry right now. Right. Uh, I don't think he's going to be much different than the rest of them. He's going to yeah. take out his opponents.
0: Well, and to that end, I'm curious as to, you know, TDU, who he was opposed to, Sean O'Brien was opposed to for years and then Hoffa pulled the last stunt with UPS, so he and the TDU teamed up, and now I'm just wondering, you know, he used to be considered the, quote, old guard, now he's the new guard with TDU, part of, and TDU's now part of the establishment, Mm -hmm. so it's it's just an interesting twist in the history of the Teamsters.
1: Sure, and it was always ironic to me how quickly Carey. Um, he was going to—he was going to clean it, clean up everything, and the new broom sweep, sweeps clean. Uh, and yet, in, in, in a few short years, he was fixing the elections and doing all those things that he swore he wouldn't do. Because you know they needed him to stay to clean up the union, and they weren't going to let anybody vote him out. He just became part of the corruption eventually.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. Just so. a different form. He wasn't mobbed up, yeah. but it was a different form.
1: Yeah. It, so the other thing
0: I think it would be appreciated by the listeners is let's go back to pensions for a moment and multi-employer pension plans. Cause there's been, we've been doing a bailout now for a year plus since the uh, 2021, what is it? The America reform act or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. There's been about $60 billion given out to various unions and their failed pension plans, but people don't really understand why pension plans fail, especially multi-employer funds.
1: Yeah. So, uh, there, there are a a lot, there are some very sound mathematical problems with multi-employer pension plans and the band-aids, these billion and billion dollar band-aids that they put on these plans do not solve the math problem. And, and when you, when you look back, First of all, multi employer pension plans were a wonderful thing. When when, you know, somebody way smarter than me, many decades thought of, okay, I have a union, I have, let's say, a thousand employers in my union. And if and and all of those thousand employers have employees who would like to have a pension. So if I start this multi-employer pension plan and I have a thousand employers funding a benefit, let's call them faucets, right? The old faucet and drain. Mm -hmm. The faucets are filling up my pension tank with money. And these thousand employers and and aided by time and investment income and everything else are going to provide benefits for all of their employees and it worked great. You know, there was some leakage with, you know, what unions actually used to do with some of the money, but that's another discussion for another day. But uh, it worked very well for a lot of years. And uh, when you look at, when union membership, when it peaked 33%, let's say, back in the in the 50s, it was wonderful and it worked very well. What happened to the faucets, right? Union membership today, what, 6% in the private sector, so those 1,000 employers providing benefits for hundreds of thousands of employees in, in a multi-employer plan, the faucets got shut off. The employers either went out of business, they went non-union, whatever happened, These there are not anywhere near the number of faucets to fill up these tanks anymore. The faucets went dry. However, the drains are still there, aren't they? All of those employees who were vested in a benefit are entitled to a benefit as they still now retire for companies that long ago went defunct. And these plans, unless unions somehow can figure out how to get their numbers back up to where it was at one point, are just never going to be able to solve the math. Okay, uh, so
0: let me let me pause you with your analogy for just a second and just kind of add to it. So, if mm-hmm. you have a thousand employers that are a thousand faucets going, and say thirty percent of them go out of business, there's still a thousand drains. In other words, the seven hundred that are still pouring money into it are now liable for the thousand employers' employees. Right. Right. They're, so that's where your underfunding comes in.
1: That's where you're underfunding, and that and that's the main reason why when an employer goes union today. They're not touching. If, if, if you're going to have to drag them kicking and screaming somehow to get them agree to participate in that pension plan, because now they're going to be responsible for the underfunding for all those other companies that went defunct to to, to to fund a benefit for you know Grandpa who who worked at at ABC Company that went out of business in 1982. Uh, so. And, you know, that, that that's just one of the many problems.
0: So let's, let's bring this back to the Teamsters for a moment, because the big central states pension fund that taxpayers just bailed out to $36 uh-huh. billion, dollars, which at one time was, well, and I think it still is, tied to the National Master Freight Agreement with the Teamsters. And Jimmy Carter deregulated the trucking industry with the Motor Carrier Act. You had Over 500 companies, I'm making up that number, but there's a ton of Teamster companies Mm. that were once part of the National Master Freight Agreement, pouring money into that, and then hundreds of them closed down, and to the point where just a a couple months ago, maybe even less, one of the last of the biggies just went out of business, but Mm. they were on the hook for technically all of the other employers' employees in that central state's pension fund
1: right? Last one out gets the lights.
0: Yeah. Last man standing type thing. Mm -hmm. You know, this is interesting because I was just, you know, we, we're just going to shoot the shit, so to speak. And we're getting into more educational stuff about how this stuff works for, if any of the listeners are employees. So it's kind of the behind the closed doors, things that a lot of people don't know.
1: I'll give you a perfect example. And people don't even realize it happened behind closed doors, going back to when, the Teamsters let Jimmy Hoffa, James Hoffa, let. Remember, they let UPS out.
0: Yeah, James Central B. Hoffa. States. Yep, yep.
1: So, so what happened there? As somebody who's an observer of this stuff, it was a, it was a deal. It was a quid pro quo. There was, t- UPS always wanted out of Central's. They were daddy warbucks, right? They were funding everybody in central states. They've always wanted them out. Sixty cents.
0: Sixty cents of every dollar that UPS was putting into the central states pension fund was going to the employees of other trucking companies.
1: Right. So the Teamsters said no. Forever. We can't let you out. We're, we're never going to let you out. On on. Now, fast forward to the other side. The Teamsters are trying to organize. There was a movie about this. Overnight. Yep. Yep. Remember Teamsters? Yep. Overnight transportation. So they wanted overnight. Horrible. I was with the Teamsters then. uh, Horrible situation. You know, we can sacrifice them, if you remember the famous quote by Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Murphy. And um, so they could never quite order. It's a big failure. It was a disgrace and a failure for them. So what does UPS do? They buy over, right, and create UPS freight. Yep. Now, all of a sudden, we're getting into collective bargaining, what would the Teamsters like from UPS? They would like card check yep. right from them. I would like you to hand me UPS freight on a silver platter so we can get dues from these people. UPS, what do you want? Oh, you want to get out of the central states plan. Hmm. Let's see how let's see if we can do something here. And that's what happened. The yep. Teamsters let UPS out of Central States. That made UPS happy. Right? They got what they wanted. UPS gives UPS freight to the Teamsters. They get ten thousand plus new members. That makes that it's a win-win, right? However, there's three parties here. Who got screwed in this deal?
0: Taxpayers. Well,
1: it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the UPS workers. They're okay. UPS took care of their workers in this deal. And 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 the Teamsters argued, well, they vote, they also get to vote for this contract. Well, of course they voted for it. They got taken care of. The people who didn't get the vote for that deal are all of those people from the the $0.60 on the dollar. All of those people who were losing Daddy Warbucks out of that plan were getting screwed. They didn't have a vote on there, and the Teamsters were supposed to represent those people, and they traded them for dues-paying members of UPS. Freight. That's what happened. That's why they got out of UPS, out of the central state's pension plan. They did a deal.
0: And to bring this even larger put some more perspective on it. This happened in 2006 and 2007. So 2006, Hoffa goes to the convention, says, hurrah, we got the ability to unionize former overnight employees, now UPS Freight. And then a year later, they do this backroom deal. They get out of the pension. UPS goes out of the pension right in 2007. So what do pension funds do when they have a withdrawal liability, a windfall of money because UPS paid about $6 billion to get out of it, mm-hmm. right? They put yep. it in the stock market. And then what happened in 2008?
1: Oh, I don't recall. I think I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah. one of the and, first and... articles on We Need the Government to Bail Out Pensions was by James P. Hoffa in 2008 after the stock market crashed. And they just,
1: that $6 billion went poof. So- went poof. Absolutely. Absolutely, and the other, you know, and the other problem with multi-employer pension plans, and and this isn't the fault of unions, honestly. Um, today's workers, it's just not a good, to, you know. You can show them the formula that if you work for us for thirty years, this is the benefit you'll get. We know they're not going to get it because the pension plans plans right. not going to last that long. But the other problem with that is people, people don't work thirty years today for a company. You know, when when Grampy went to work for the factory, he worked for them for 30 years, he got a watch and a pension, and and that's because that's what everybody did. And today workers, I think the average tenure for a worker is 4.7 years, I think was the study. 4.7 years, that's not even enough to get vested in a pension plan. Right. So and, and these people all those contributions for 4.7 years in a union go into that union plan you make a decision to move on your career, like workers do today. They, they they move on to other workplaces. Most people work ten jobs in their career. They get nothing for that. The fund gets that money, but it gets smoothed out through the smoothing process, and and they end up working a bunch of jobs in their career. And if they're in these defined contribution plans, they don't get a benefit. The four people I get into these discussions with workers all the time. The 401k is the way to go for today's workers. It's the way to go, because if you take that four years and that five years, you're going to have money. Nobody's taking that money from you. It's not going away, and you get to take it with you for all of your whole career, and it continues to build. And if you're smart, you have to manage it a little bit, but you'll have a nest egg. You can retire. You, 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 You get that money, and it grows, and you can have a million or $2 million if you do it right. Whereas in that union pension plan, even if you stay 30 years, you're probably not going to get that benefit. Um, and, And the reality is the union, you know, this is where when you have someone as your exclusive representative to speak for you, their needs are different than yours. The union representative, his need is to get your contribution in your name into his pension plan because Grampy still needs the money right? He still has a pension coming and we're running out of money. You're not going to get it. That pension plan, you're 25, that pension plan, you're not going to be here when you're 60, and that plan isn't likely to be around. But for the union, they sell them on that idea where we're going to get this pension contributions. Here's the formula. They just don't tell them the whole story. So for the employee, they should run from a multi-employer pension plan today. They should run from it. Uh, But the union needs to get that contribution into their plan because it's upside down.
0: Well, and you're hitting several points in here that a lot of workers don't get the vesting thing, which if you've got, you know, unless you've got a worker that's going to stay at a particular employer, cool, if they're in a union pension, except if it's a multi-employer plan and you've got all these other employers, if they go out of business, your employer is going to be on a hook for all Mm -hmm. those other businesses which means are their employees which means that's going to drive down their ability to stay in business which that 30 year dream may never occur and, and, and we're and that, seeing this across the United States in and, all
1: and that's a and that's a continuum even if that dialogue only happens a little bit when it comes time for collective bargaining and negotiations You have to put so much of the money that normally would be yours in increases in wages has to go to shore up that pension plan. And and these are the calculations that union officials make all the time. If you're just a little underfunded, it's still your money going into that plan. You could say the employer makes the contribution, but that's otherwise wages. It's still your money that would otherwise be wages that they have to divert to put in a failing pension plan. And when they're really failing and when the employer's on the hook for all that, you're not getting increases. They have to put it in the pension plan.
0: Yeah. And the union gets
1: to make that call for you.
0: You're worried that we're going to run out of topics to talk about. (laughs) Right. So let's talk about what we initially talked about last week, which is the union authorization card. And obviously you're aware of the CMEX decision or CEMEX, as I was told yesterday, which makes it easier to unionize workers without an election based on the number of cards and the employer's conduct. But let, let's talk about union authorization cards because a lot of people sign cards without really realizing the ramifications.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, unions will always argue that the cards are, um, employers violate the law and, and the cards are the only true way to dictate sympathies for a union. Um, Listen, uh, good organizers can can get cards signed. Uh, even bad organizers can get cards signed. Cards, as an organizer, I don't think I've ever had as many votes in an election as I had cards signed, right? Cards are not a reliable indicator of support for a union. And, and while... Semex didn't go so far as to grant car check boy they're getting awful close and and the problem with authorization costs, I I like to call it the given moment right Um, uh, defense attorneys call it temporary insanity Uh, psychologists kind of refer to it as you know Pavlovian kind of in reverse you know Pavlovian you Hmm. think of good things in response but the response to a bad thing but just think about uh, the signing of an authorization card and when you can do it. And and I again, I call it the given moment. There are things in life, you know. Peter, do you, do you have a dog or anything? Do you have any pets? Used to uh, once okay. got swooped up by so, an owl. <laughs> I I have a dog. I love my dog. Right. I love my family. We have wives, kids, and whatever. And and situations that where we would never do anything to change that relationship. So uh, my dog I love him he's my, my buddy my best friend but you know in any given moment when 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 he either takes a big old dump on the carpet or he does something or he chews up my wallet or whatever he does there's the given moment when I if I when I would sign that card or or I would do something to end that relationship people do it all the time uh, or, or your wife when you get the credit card bill right? Uh, we all do things out of response in the given moment that we would never do when making a sober, thought out decision at a specific time and date. And, it's an and emotional,
0: that's, emotional response.
1: That's the magic with card check. Uh, is there any place in the world with more given moments than the workplace? Right. Right. Workplaces have given moments. The best workplaces have many given moments and the polls are always open. If you want to sign a card and when that card becomes your vote, the polls are open to vote for a union Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, when, when you have to work Monday night and the Eagles are on Monday night football go first. And, uh, or or you got written up for attendance, or anything, your boss is in a bad, you're in a bad mood, there's always, it takes five seconds to sign a card. And when you're at that given moment, guess who's there to hand you a card? There's somebody there to hand you a card, and there's always an opportunity to vote for a union. If you wanna vote for the union, the polls are always open, 24-7, 365. And once they get over 50%, you're, you're, you're well on your way. If you don't want a union in your workplace and you're one of those people, when can you vote no for a union? Never. Right. There's never a chance to vote no. You can only vote yes and you can only vote yes. So of course, organizers can get cards signed. There's always, workplaces are troubled places. They always are, if you have to be there, no matter what you do for a living, if you have to be there, it's it's a job and 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 there's going to be moments when you just don't want to be there and you're angry and you're in a mood and 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 and, and people sign cards there's well, not a viable way to find out sympathies of whether someone wants to join a union that has to be at a sober point on a calendar when you get to go in and vote yes or no
0: There there's a phrase that I think everybody in our industry uses trigger events and there's different Types of pressure that will cause a bigger or lesser trigger event. So you, you sometimes go into employers and you hear that card signing has been going on for six months and it's not that big of a company where there's not that many workers. Well, if it's been going on for six months and say it's a hundred workers, typically if it's a big trigger event, you can get well over 60, 70% to sign cards like, you know, like that. If it's, if it's one where there's just little triggers you'll have a batch of card signing your you know period of card signing it's not enough and then something will push people over the edge you know yeah. whether it's whether it's a bad supervisor blowing up on the floor not a good increase in a you know competitive wage market whatever it is open or open enrollment yeah our costs <laughs> are going up that's a good trigger event you know, so it's usually those trigger events. And the problem with that is people are making, as you're saying, it's that given moment or that emotional response to something that angers them without realizing the full ramifications.
1: Right. And, then- and, 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 and very often in our lives, uh, the given moment are, are things that you do that you can take back. And that's why it was okay for me. You know, there had to be some mechanism for the board to gauge some interest so that they can come in and sponsor an election. I get that. You can't just have an election because the union calls and the board says we want an election. So for that purpose, the cards were fine. But when the cards now become, in those circumstances, the vote, you know, in other circumstances, you can take back the given one. You know, I'm, I'm not taking my dog to the pound. I'm going to keep him or I'm going to go back and get him. In this circumstance, you sign that card, you've succumbed. And, and there's not an opportunity to get it back and change your mind. It's now the property of the union and and there's no vote, you know, in many circumstances, at least with Semex, there's certainly the potential for that card to be the last say.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, you and I you use the term Phil's term left to boom. <clears throat> so you and I, yeah, you know, we deal with a lot of employers that are at this point saying, what should we do? What should we do? the, the phrase that I picked up from somebody years ago is: "If you want to stay union free, be issue free." Right. So you need to fix your issues, find out what they are, fix your issues. But in terms of like educating your employees right now, I would suggest stay with the voluntary meetings. But you know, <laughs> part of this, <laughs> yeah, we're we're still waiting for the other shoe to drop with the. Uh, it it didn't come out win. in CMEX. Yeah, that that they ban ban mandatory meetings, which is, you know, that's the prerogative. Okay. I like doing voluntary meetings. <clears <Right>. <clears <throat> voluntary down. meetings anyway. But, you know, part of this, to your point, is educating employees about the ramification of cards and not making irrational or emotional decisions. Because every day you're going to have a you know, at least somewhere in the day you'll have a bad moment.
1: Yeah. And 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 I think, you know, anytime these earth-shattering moves come out from the board, the, the, the good news in all of that is the employers do tend to, okay, how do I avoid this from happening? And the answer is uh, about keeping a good relationship and making sure that direct relationship is one where it's reasonable and fair to the employees, the left of boom uh, that, that Phil refers to. Um, and you start seeing an uptick on employers getting involved in, in that type of engagement and start trying to address their workplaces. So from that aspect, you know sometimes I like these decisions because it forces employers to look at the practices that they have in their workplace and and as corny as it sounds, happy workers really are more productive. I know that sounds they, they get hurt less amazingly somehow for some right. reason and you know in in the the business world, it's easy for employers to forget that because their lives are a mess also with trying to keep their business afloat and, and do the things they need to do to be successful. And there's nothing like the threat of a union sometimes to remind them that they need to maintain that good relationship with their employees. So decisions like this, in my mind, that's the positive of it. Uh, once they start focusing on keeping their workplace uh with less issues, I, I hesitate to say issue-free because I haven't seen that anywhere yet. Right. Uh, but uh, address the issues in the workplace, that's where I live. That, that's why, that's what keeps the man in the mirror happy for me when I can go in and when I can talk to employers about how they keep the union out by keeping their workplace one where the employees value it. Nothing better when the employees tell the union to, to go, right? Uh, because we're good here. Um, so employers can do that. And and when they see the sky falling like this, uh, they do look left to boot and and that's good. That's a good thing.
0: So let me ask your opinion of this. It's fairly obvious why unions would want card check or employees not to have an election. Like that's easy. I, I don't have any competition. I'm going to get all the customers in right mm-hmm. on the flip side to that. Assuming workers, get unionized through card check would not that lead them to be more disgruntled with the union and as a result of that if they don't have a contract after a year wouldn't that increase the propensity for employees to decertify the union
1: would it increase? yeah of course it would um but very often you know you get the peer pressure uh, and very often the union gets a con unions know this Right? They know they have a year. They know they have a contra- a, a, an election bar for that year. And, and when you make a union the bargaining representative, uh, their goal, that's their sole goal is to get that contract. Uh, I always tell employees there is the potential that after a year, if you don't like this, um, you can vote the union out. But more importantly, you're going to be in status quo. Why don't you wait and see what happens? The same is true if you vote no. You know, the the um, if you're not sure what you want to do, the only option that leaves your options open is to vote no. Because if an, a union gets that year, and and before that year is up, if they get a contract, your union and you can't vote the union out. They use right. that three-year contract bar and they stay in. So very often, yes votes are permanent. No votes are tempor- temporary. Temporary. Are they going to be disgruntled with the union? If the union brings them back a bad contract, are they going to be disgruntled with the union? And if the union gets that contract ratified, because there's tricks to getting a bad contract ratified.
0: Sure, sure.
1: And, and you know them, and I, the dual-purpose ballot, you make them choose between that and going on strike. And, and yeah, a lot of members get disgruntled with the union. When I was working for the Teamsters, if I would want win an organizing effort, and if I could get a contract, my goal, My ultimate goal was to get a contract that raised wages and benefits for the workers who I represent. Of course I wanted that. But if the only contract I could get from an employer was not good for workers, it was equally good for me. If I got a thousand employees and I go into collective bargaining and I bring back a bad contract and I manipulate the ratification process and get it ratified, man, I'm a hero. I'm a hero in my office. I'm not buying drinks on Friday. They're in. And now we have a contract bar. So our goal is to get a contract. The business needs dictate that we need those members. And getting a contract is really our goal. We'd like it to be good, but we'll take a bad one. That was my experience with the shirts, And that was one of the reasons that I had to get out. That's what made me feel like we were a greedy corporation. We need the money And the money was more important than the members' money. And we would take those bad contracts if that's the only ones we could get.
0: Well, and the selling point to the members is, well, we got a contract, and that's the first step, so the next one will be better. I've heard that said a bunch of times.
1: Every time, every time. But we worry about that three years down the line, and the reality is we want three-year contracts. Why? Because the contract bar under the law lasts as long as three years, right? So, so when when I tell people guess how long the union is gonna guess how long standard union contracts are well three years yeah because we piggyback that protection you know right. if we get a three-year contract and there's a three-year contract bar you're never voting me out unless you could figure out that little window and you're never right. gonna do that right uh and by the way it's against the rules uh so you know very often the path of least resistance when employees when you see you know this stuff but it's a heavy lift to tell employees in an organizing new effort. And, and I think the real goal is to stop us from giving this simple education, common sense education, about what their rights are in these campaigns. And most good consultants who have these meetings give this education. It's not about screwing them out of their rights. It's simply telling them what their rights are and how we get contracts that trap you in our organization. If we can get a contract, doesn't matter if it's bad. You're in and you're going to be in the rest of your career, probably. However, if you vote no here and and your employer screws you and it was a trick and they didn't do anything or fix anything, I'm not coming back next year and you're going to have an opportunity to do this again. My experience is most employers take that year, take stock, address issues in their workplace. Some don't, but many of them do. And, and, It's a rare situation where the union does come back a year later because the employer has addressed issues and made the workplace and that direct relationship more powerful. My experience.
0: Right. Well, and that's, you know, for those of us that advocate for employees, that's the whole goal because the source of the problem oftentimes is the employer or its behavior. And Mm -hmm. so if you can fix that without the adversarial process that a union often brings, you know, that's... That's the goal of helping workers. But...
1: And, and my experience with this is employers, you know, when the issue is wages and benefits, employers prevail when employees get the information about how collective bargaining really works. But when the issue is an emotional, or unions need emotional issues. Wages and benefits, we know this, aren't good selling points for unions. They need the emotional issue. They need employees to, to want to vote against the employer. And when the, the issues are emotional, I hate my employer. I don't care if the union can help me or not. I just want to vote F you to my employer. And those campaigns are hard to win. And employers who create that atmosphere, uh, they're the ones that get the unions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's the toxic boss. You know, the mm-hmm. if you've got toxicity in the workplace, if it's a supervisor, manager, vice president, whatever, you know, that's, If you're not addressing that as the employer, that's what's going to kill you and get you unionized.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, do you worry they're going to ban captive audience meetings? I don't care if they do. I'm not. No,
0: I don't either. I don't either. I, you know, everybody's all up in arms about this. New York governor just passed uh, or signed into law the the ban yesterday, I think. And Um, I'm like the fifth state now. I don't want to talk to people who don't want to talk to me anyway. I like doing classes on this stuff.
1: I, I do too, and and my experience is I almost you know. The two sides think that there's a big war over captive audience meetings. Most of the time, the employees like it. They get off the floor for a little bit. They come in, they have a snack or whatever. We we keep them entertaining. We're nobody's browbeating, nobody's threatening anybody. We're giving them good education. We're joking around with them. Half the time, we're we're making fun of their employer, and 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 we talk to them about their workplace, and they t- they tend to like us. Employees that don't want to be in the meetings. You know, I I let them go. Nobody's going to get written up for not being here. You don't have to be here. And I tell them, here's why you should stay, though. Here's why you should stay. Um, I can teach you some things. I was with the union for a lot of years. If you're so hell-bent on bringing you in here, I'm not going to change your mind. But I can show you some things that might help you when it comes time to vote for your contract that maybe you don't know now. The other reason you should stay, I'm talking to your coworkers. I'm telling. I'm giving them this education. Don't you want to know what I'm telling them? Don't you want to be right. able to counter what I'm saying? If you just leave, I'm going to have meetings with the employees, and and I'm going to win their hearts and minds. Maybe you ought to stay and find out what I have to say. And when they do that, I usually become friends with them because they 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 do their research. I don't lie to employees. You know, good consultants don't have to. We go in. We tell them how it works. And when they, we tell them to do their own research, I tell them first meeting. People are going to lie to you. It might be me. You don't know me. Do your research. And if you catch me lying, out me in front of everybody because I'm not here to lie to anybody. And when they find out, geez, that guy told us the truth, we tend to make friends. They're still voting for the union, but we don't have that adversarial. They don't call me a union buster. They They generally kid around with me at the end because I haven't lied to them. You know, this could work out well for you, but it can work out like shit also. Uh, So um, the, the fear of them banning a captive audience meeting doesn't worry me in the least.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, and you know me in both from personal standpoint and elsewhere, I'm, I'm that small L libertarian, not, I'm not talking politics, just like if people have the information and this is the way I approach it in doing classes, whether they're with students whether they're with workers whether they're with management I'm here to educate you about the law Uh you can jump whatever way you want to jump and you know it's interesting I recently had a worker um, challenge me on exclusive representation Uh and what it means under the law and Uh I was like hold that thought for a minute as I'm going to show you what the law says and went through it with them and and gave them examples and it's like you know people today and I don't want to, I don't want to buttonhole them into a certain generation, but it's a lot of the younger kids because you and I are up there in age and boomers, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. they don't, they think we don't know what we're talking about. When all you and I have done in our adult lives is what we're talking about. And it's just <laughs> right. It's fast right. It's like, Oh, bless your heart. So mm-hmm. it's interesting and entertaining at this age to, to encounter people who think they know the world and how it works and don't know it at all.
1: Yeah. And, and, and honestly, um, especially in meetings with, you know, uh, the Starbucks of the world, which I've had none, but <laughs> the Gen Zers, yes. the Gen Zers of the world.
0: I wanted to talk uh, about that because I'm, I've been fascinated by it.
1: Yeah. And it's different. We've adapted some of our campaign. Uh, I guess I'll use the word tactics a little bit to them. You know, they get their information in such small bites uh, that that's almost how you have to deliver it to them. There's a lot less of flyers and a lot more of TikTok style videos. So we incorporate that into our campaigns now um, and push out messages. Again, with the same idea, we wanna educate you. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna get in the mud with you and argue with you. We want you to learn how this works. But it's it's kind of a different dynamic in talking with them. the old, long meetings, you know, having a 45-minute meeting and getting into the weeds with this, with the respect of the National Labor Relations Act and giving them copies of the book doesn't hold their attention. And, 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 and they very often don't care. They Very often it's, it's a matter of they just want – a lot of times they like their employer. I, I did some work with a casino with a lot of Gen Zers. They love their leadership. They love their employer. They just want to stick it to the man. They just want to stick it to the man, and and whatever that means to them, and they and and for whatever reason, and the unions are the flavor of the day for many of the Gen Zers because that's what they're seeing on TikTok, and there's a lot of influencers doing a lot of, uh, you know, um, work there. Uh, in 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 healthcare, it's nurse, got a nurse Kelly or something like that who keeps putting up these TikTok videos. But the reality is, you know, you talk to them differently. What they don't realize is, you know, they want to stick it to the man. So they show you the employer and the board and all the money that they're making and all these rich white people, you know, from their perspective, making all this money that's got their thumb down on them. So in their mind, they're going to hire the Teamsters or SEI, whoever they hire to come in and they're going to hire them to talk to their employers. And the ironic thing is when you show them the people that they've hired to talk to the man, look like the man, right? (laughs) Right? When you show them their salaries and what they look like, you've got a bunch of rich white men over here and a bunch of rich white men over here. And those two, you're going to hire them to talk to them. They're just like that. They go to the same country club probably. And you're going to put, you know, I tell them the, use the analogy of you're getting the two lions together to talk about new sheep. And, and that's really what they're going to do. And you're just, and you're going to pay that. You're going to pay that.
0: Or worse yet, you have the union, a union, and I can tick off the top of my head, the AFL CIO as the federation, the teamsters, the SEIU and others who treat their own workers just like the workers you're talking to. Those workers are sometimes union. Sometimes they're not like in the teamsters, mm-hmm. the organizers, and and you know, the individual I'm about ready to mention, not by name, but you know, the organizers out of the national, out of the headquarters were not unionized many years ago. And one of the lead organizers who was trying to unionize the organizers Got fired by the Teamsters.
1: <laughs> some of the worst real union busters are unions when their right. staff tries to unionize.
0: Right. Uh, the SEIU right now is a, having a contract battle with its own staff, and they're about ready to go out on strike because they're the SEIU is taking out of the union buster playbook, according to the union.
1: <laughs> right. I so. remember a letter some years ago. It was written by James P. Hoffa. Uh, its staff of unionized janitors and, and house cleaners were about right. to go on strike. And he put a letter out to all principal all officers yep. saying that, that they're doing it to embarrass us. And we're going to, if they go on strike, you know, they don't, they, they refuse to recognize the economic realities of our world and our economics. Right. Sounds just like yep. a letter that an employer yep. would put out. And And if they go on strike, we're going to run our business and we're going to do what we have to do. I was like, if I wrote that letter, I'd be the union buster. It was, it was right. ironic. And, and this he, was and the president the of balls. the
0: teamsters. Yep.
1: He sent it to all the, all the principal officers and, and and probably 10 of them sent it to me. Right. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not with them. Anymore. Yeah. Like, Look at what this asshole just sent me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. There's, um, and well, and if you recall with the organizers who tried to organize the NLRB came down on the Teamsters International. They had to post notices. You know, yep. we, we will not yeah. terminate you for organizing a union.
1: So <laughs> ironic. <Crazy laughs> and there's and, there. and there's a lot of stories like that. There's a lot of stories like that.
0: Right. Well, Mr. Brock, we have been on for more than an hour. Wow. And you thought it wouldn't we wouldn't have enough to talk about.
1: I thought, yeah, I thought I was going to pull the hell out. It probably still did.
0: Yeah, that's all right. So let's do this again. It's fun.
1: I would love to. I appreciate. I listen, I listen for your podcasts. I have a lot of them in queue. Uh, when you have, you know, when you and Phil get together, it's just, you know, I wait to hear from you and Phil when these decisions come down. I don't even research it. I wait to hear till till you uh, tell me what it says and what Phil tells me, uh, it says, and, and you get the strategy from you too. It's just wonderful. So I appreciate you. I appreciate your guests and I, yeah, I've got to sure get back with him. It, so. He's
0: got an open invite to come on whenever, but he's, he's pretty busy as you can imagine.
1: So. Uh, I know, I know, but, uh, but I enjoy them. So, so thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Great.
0: Well, it was my pleasure and I'm glad we got to do this. So we'll, we'll talk soon. Also. Thanks for coming okay. on Labor relations radio. Thank you, Peter. So that was Joe Brock, former Teamster leader, now labor and employee relations consultant, expressing his views on a lot of different subjects. And we realized after we got off that there were several other things we wanted to get to. So I'm definitely going to have him back on at some point. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days at Workplace Report that's at Workplace RPT give us a call at 888 668 6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode thanks for listening and have a great week you have been listening to labor relations radio Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News
1: Digest.